as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned, and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. When they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and people rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. Paul wished to go into the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some officials of the province of Asia, who were friendly to him, sent him a message urging him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd gave instructions to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed forward. And Alexander motioned for silence and tried to make a defense before the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, all of them shouted in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Citizens of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the statue that fell from heaven? Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. You have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the artisans with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges there against one another. If there is anything further you want to know, it must be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
so much, Gigi, for reading our lesson this morning. And uh, I want to add to Adam's word of greeting to all of you. It's so good to see all of you in person here on this beautiful fall day, the second Sunday in the month of November. And those of you who are online, we welcome you wherever you are. Uh, we have heard from many of you. Uh, sometimes you're in a nurse's station. Sometimes you're in an assisted living. Uh, sometimes there are even those in jail who are watching us. There are people all across the country. And so whatever state or situation you're in, let me just say what a joy it is to be with you in worship today. And we consider it a great privilege that you're tuning in as we share the word of God today. Uh, I want to thank, uh, thank Gigi for reading, Mason, James, all who have led us, uh, or I referred to the praise team today as Gigi and the Righteous Brothers. That was some really, really good harmony this morning. I'm so grateful to them uh, for the wonder and beauty and joy of worship. Also, I want to mention that on, uh, in your bulletin, there are also a list of names of confirmands. There are 93 confirmands, students, can you believe it, uh, during all that we've been through this year who will be confirmed here at the altar uh, this afternoon at 1 p.m. And Adam and Holly and others of us, family members and friends, uh, friends in faith, uh, grandparents, parents, uh, will, be, will have the privilege of laying hands on these children, uh, these students, as they make their profession of faith public in Jesus today. And so what a day it is uh, to be a part of the family of God. We're continuing this morning uh, the next to last message uh, in this series that we're calling uh, With Open Hands. And I have to tell you, it's hard to believe that next Sunday will be the last Sunday of the Christian year, the last Sunday before Thanksgiving. Two weeks from today is the first Sunday of Advent. Can you believe it? And we'll begin our journey towards Bethlehem together on November 28th out in the Narthex. Uh, we'll be having our normal concert, Youth Advent Concert, 335 and 7. And what, what an evening that will be. We hope you'll mark your calendar and be a part of that. So we're in the fourth of five messages in this series called With Open Hands with a reading, Gigi, from what I think is one of the more troubling accounts of the ministry of the church from Acts chapter 19. Although let me say that one of the things that I appreciate so much about Luke's writing and Luke's history of the early church is that Luke never hides the hardships of witness. Luke never papers over the trials and conflicts where occasionally the gospel collides with the status quo. The status quo is a Latin term, means the existing state of affairs, and Luke never hides it. Luke does, however, tend to understate sometimes. I don't know if you've noticed this. For example, in the opening verse that Gigi read, verse 23, Acts 19, about that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. That's an understatement. In Acts chapter 19, the stuff hits the fan. Things get tense. In fact, I think things get a little out of control, which tends to happen, by the way, when the economy and our theology collide. And such was the case in Ephesus. Did you know that Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any other city that he served? And I'm talking Philippi, Corinth, 
Colossae, all of them. He served there for two and a half, maybe three years. It was the custom of the Apostle Paul that whenever he established a beachhead for the gospel in a new city, he would always start out at the synagogue because he had connections there. And there for several weeks, maybe even three months, as in the case in Ephesus, he would teach the people how the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, point to Jesus as the messianic fulfillment of the coming kingdom of God. And he would preach there until they threw him out which they always did. And then he would usually go and find a public venue, a public place where he could engage a broader audience, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. In the case of Ephesus, he came to Ephesus from Corinth after he'd spent a year and a half there with Priscilla and Aquila who helped him. They shared in a common tent-making trade. He came to Ephesus where we're told in Acts 19 that Paul argued every day, get this, for two years in a specific place called the Hall of Tyrannus. That's interesting that Luke remembers the specific lecture hall, the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, I've been to Ephesus, and some of you went with us a couple of years ago, and I've seen what's left of the ancient, old, the library there on the, on the left you can see, the old library in the ancient town of Ephesus. And it's likely, historians say, that in or near that old library, there was a school or a classroom named after a teacher called Tyrannus. And this is where Paul taught. Now, when I think of Tyrannus, surely this man's parents didn't name him as a boy Tyrannus because that name literally, you know what it means? Tyrant, (laughs) dictator. Now, granted, I've known a couple of two-year-olds who could live up to that name, but surely this was more likely a nickname that was given to him by his students. That's not unusual, is it? to do that sort of thing, students to teachers. Teachers often get a reputation, especially if they're really tough. I had a Tyrannus in high school, Overton High School, a few miles down the road. Her name, she was a history teacher, her name was Miss Karnowski. And for the students, when we said to them, Adam, I got Karnowski today, it meant I got a failing grade. She was really tough. In fact, years after, that name still strikes a little bit of fear and tension in me because in my junior year, I was placed in her history class and I remember thinking to myself on day one, well, there goes my GPA. And after a few weeks in Mrs. Karnowski's class, I discovered her problem. She expected us to study. Now, I know that every teacher expects that, but Mrs. Karnowski really, really, really expected it to the point that she became the queen of the pop quiz, which at the age of 16, I thought was just an unjust educational tool that teachers would use to show you who's boss, but it was her way of making sure that you were, you were studying. She was my tyrannus. And she just about made a student out of me. And so it was with Paul. After being kicked out of the synagogue where he taught for three months, he sets up shop in the hall of Tyrannus, which is an appropriate place for Paul because he had no interest whatsoever 
in forming soft-minded disciples. And neither do we. I was driving through Maryland Farms the other day, and I was behind a car whose bumper sticker said this, and I quote, critical thinking, dot, 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 the other national deficit. And I thought, that's true. And yet at the same time, I had this little conversation with myself, reminding myself that my job as a disciple is not to be simply a critic (laughs) of the culture, but to live out my faith as a disciple in the existing state of affairs. The great commandment, according to Jesus, includes, and I'm going to preach on this at the confirmation service today, includes loving God not with, just with heart and soul and strength, but with our what? With our mind. Paul echoed this in Romans 12 too, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So that you may know and discern what is pleasing to God so that you may know the will of God. You see this in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who need never be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that rightly dividing phrase is interesting. It's an agricultural term that literally means that when you teach, when you preach, you cut a clear path You explain, you exegete, you interpret the word to the existing state of affairs. I think it is no accident, by the way, that the Greek word for disciple, you know what it really means? Student, learner. A disciple is not one who has all the answers, but a disciple is a lifetime student who never tires of exploring the mystery of God and living in to that. Well, that's what Paul was doing in that venue in the hall of Tyrannus. He was making disciples. He was teaching and he wasn't going for soft-minded. Soft heart is one thing, but he was cutting a path for the people in his teaching. And the Holy Spirit was changing minds. The Holy Spirit is still in the business of changing minds and hearts. And so it was in Ephesus. In fact, Paul became so effective in his teaching in Ephesus that we're told in Acts 19.19 that many of the people who were into sorcery and magic and witchcraft were giving it up to the point that they were actually discarding their books. They were burning them publicly. And the price tag on those books was big. In fact, Luke recalls how much they cost, 50,000 silver coins. And this isn't in the scriptures. This is the revised chapel version. But because of all that, the Chamber of Commerce was getting the jitters because it looked like Paul was becoming a threat to the economy. Now, let me give you a little window into the culture of Ephesus before we go any further. Ephesus was the fourth most important city in the empire. So after Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, Ephesus was the fourth largest city. It was booming economically. 
and mostly because of the temple of Artemis that you can see on the slide, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the biggest, largest edifice in the Greek world, 425 feet by 225 feet. It was twice the size of the Parthenon. So if you're on West End, which is the exact dimensions of the Parthenon in Athens, think of that twice as big as the Parthenon. It boasted 77 pillars that were 60 feet high and it took 120 years to build. The Temple of Artemis. The cult of Artemis was one of the most widely followed cults in the Greco-Roman world. Consequently then, as you can imagine, the tourism industry was off the charts, bigger than Nashville. In fact, historians tell us that every year annually they would host a week-long festival called Artemision. It was the first century version of Bonnaroo if you want to think about it. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. You remember your Greek mythology? She was the goddess of wild animals, vegetation, childbirth. Her Roman name was Diana. She was believed to be the daughter of Zeus, the twin sister of Apollo, and people came from all over the world to see that temple. The souvenir folk were making bank and the artisans and craft folks who were making these trinkets of this goddess, these statuettes, they were selling like toilet paper in a pandemic. But now there's an apostle in town. And Paul is teaching people of a God man who came from Nazareth. And on top of that, he's teaching that God, God's made with hands are not really God's at all. And suddenly, the economy begins tanking. And I don't have to tell y'all this, but when theology gets crossways with the economy, whew, you better look out. There's trouble right here in Music City. And so the Trinket Trade Union calls a little meeting. Demetrius is the chair, and it gets really ugly. <laughs> now pause it there for just a minute. To be sure, the economy is critical to civil society. We all know that. 30 years ago, you remember there was a political strategist who coined a phrase during a presidential election. You remember the phrase? It's the economy, stupid. It's important. It's vital. It's critical. In fact, let me tell you, when you jeopardize a person's livelihood, you jeopardize their life, their family, their children. I don't know about you, but I'm a little concerned about inflation. We're concerned about those cargo tankers out in the ocean. We're concerned about supply and demand. We ought to be. We're concerned about gas pumps and groceries, especially for those who are most vulnerable, especially for those in our culture who were already struggling by the way, did you know that the word economy in the scripture refers to household management 
or fiscal responsibility, which is the key to sustainability of any organization, of any institution, of the church, of the city, of the state, of the nation. In fact, money is mentioned in the New Testament 140 times. Jesus talked a lot about it. But I want you to note is that money is not just a secular issue. It's a spiritual matter. How we allocate, how we distribute, how we spend, how we share our resources is a spiritual matter. And Jesus talked a lot about it. One of the things that's so disturbing to me right now about our political landscape is our seeming inability or unwillingness to collaborate, to give and take in a way that's kind of good for the whole instead of just my group or, or my party or my caucus or my perspective. It sometimes even infects the institution of my church. And it occurred to me the other day that maybe, maybe we have a bad case of what my grandmother used to call the memize. That's one of the first words that children learn besides no is mine. And I think sometimes we get infected by a bad case of the memize. We're just not always so good when it comes to sharing. And when I see that in my own life, I realize that is a part of our fallen nature. And there is a remedy for it. It's called repentance. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who said there are three conversions that are absolutely necessary. The conversion of the head, the heart, and the pocketbook. And unfortunately, they don't all occur at the same time. But what I have noticed in my own life is that when Jesus gets inside your head and your heart, he begins to open our hands. In fact, I need to say, and, and Mike, you would agree with this. Mike is our finance chair here. I've been absolutely amazed the last two years at the generosity of this church of the willingness to continue to contribute, to pledge, to give of our tithes and offerings. It's just been amazing to see. And we're so grateful. But the rippet in Ephesus was the result of theology colliding with economics and it caused no small disturbance. That's an understatement. There was a full-blown riot in Ephesus that led to the theater. Many of us have stood at that theater. It seated 25,000 people, and it was all ginned up by the half-truths of the head of the trinket trade. And there was mob hysteria. Verse 29 says it like this. The city was filled with confusion. Some were shouting one thing and some another, and most of them didn't really know why they were there. But it was hysteria. Paul wanted to come out and speak to the mob, but the disciples wouldn't let him. They'd have strung him up. And for a moment, for a few hours, it was pure pandemonium. It was just raw emotion. 
When I think about that, I'm reminded of another quote of an infamous leader who once said, I use emotion for the many and I reserve reason for the few. Spoken by Adolf Hitler. Or how about this quote from the same source? By means of shrewd lies unremittingly repeated, it is possible to make people believe that heaven is hell and hell is heaven. The greater the lie, the more readily it will be believed. Thank God for the city commissioner in Ephesus who actually was one of the keepers of the temple of Artemis. But he had a little Gamaliel in him. You remember Gamaliel? If this is of God, you're kicking against the goads. If it's not, it will fade away. He calms the assembly and he dismisses them. Now watch this. As time passes, as the years go by after this event, the temple of Artemis would fall into disuse. In fact, I have a picture of it having been there two years ago. That's what's left of the wonder. And when I look at it, I realize that an economy based on idolatry is unsustainable. And by the way, idolatry is an attempt to localize and parochialize God, confining God within the limits that I impose. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, don't let your economics determine your faith. Jesus implied that money is a good servant, but it's a tyrant of a master. And what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose your soul? I don't know why, but maybe that's partly what the great resignation is about. They are predicting now, social uh, economists are predicting that 30% of the workforce will shift vocations in the next 18 months. Why is that? Well, in some cases, it may just be worn out. It may just be burnout. I just can't do it anymore. But in some cases, I think we're discovering as a result of the crisis that making a living is not enough. What we need is a life. And the life that we're really looking for is found in the open, loving, serving, nail-scarred hands of a Galilean. There is something more important, I think, than profit margin, and that's purpose margin. What is the margin of purpose in the life of a disciple? Colossians 3 says it like this, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as though you are working for the Lord because you are. 
Let me give you one example and I'm finished. We'll prepare to come to the table. Last word. In 1985, Roddy Edmonds passed away. Roddy Edmonds was born in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1919. He grew up attending a little Methodist church. He went to Sunday school there. He enlisted at the age of 22 in 1941 and became a part of the 422nd Regiment of the 106th, uh, 106th Infantry Division. In December 1944, his regiment landed in France and traveled to eastern Belgium near the German border. And on December the 16th, 1944, the 422nd was one of several regiments attacked in what was called the Battle of the Bulge. The Germans captured 20,000 of our GIs. Edmund's regiment held out for five days before surrendering at which time they were forced to march miles and miles and loaded into boxcars with no food and no water. Edmund's group was a group of non-commissioned officers, NCOs, who were then shipped to a POW camp called Stalag 9A. Of the 1,275 men that had been taken prisoner, including uh, Edmonds, he was the highest ranking NCO. In January of 1945, at that camp, the Germans announced that all Jewish POWs would need to report the following morning. And everybody knew what that meant. They were going to be sent to extermination camps. But none of those German officers could have predicted what Edmonds would do. The next morning, Roddy Edmonds ordered his fellow prisoners, Jews and non-Jews alike, to fall out, to line up in front of the barracks, every one of them, 1,275 soldiers. And when the German officers approached and saw that every prisoner lined up in front of the barracks, they were all there, he said to Edmonds, they cannot all be Jews. To which Edmonds replied, we are all Jews here. And with that, the German officer pulled a pistol to Edmund's head, and still he refused to waver. He simply said, we are all Jews here. And the officer knew he didn't know what to do. <laughs> and he took back his gun and backed down, preventing over 200 Jewish soldiers in that regiment from being singled out for persecution and death. Roddy Edmonds was 25. He never talked about it when he came home. No one really knew the story. But when he died 40 years later in 1985, his son, Chris, who is actually a minister in Maryville, Tennessee, found his daddy's diaries. He found these old names and addresses of comrades and he started his research and some of them were Jewish and they all told him the same story. We owe our lives to your father. His act of love and courage made the difference for us between life and death. How's that for a purpose margin? <laughs>
Reminds me a little bit of another Jewish man who did the same for you and for me. And you cannot imagine how wonderful it is to stand in this place today and to tell you that in the economy of God's grace, there isn't any inflation. There isn't any erosion of God's goodness. There isn't any supply problem because his arms are open wide to receive us. And frankly, we owe our lives to him. When we come to this table, I invite you to come with open hands, ready to receive, but also ready to share, knowing that here we are all children of God. In Jesus' name.